We have two texts today, and one is very familiar to you in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. The second is in Psalm 37. And so if you want to turn there uh, at this time, you may do so. The verse from the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. From Psalm 37, it's verses 8 through 11. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. I realized before I left that I said that the series on creation was finished, but there are still some matters that I want to touch on. Um, And I realized that it could go on and on, and I trust by God's grace I won't be the case. But there are some things I think we should look at. First, I want to thank the men who spoke for Tom, Titus, Ben, and Mike. I was able to be here when Mike spoke, but because of Dave's work, every Monday morning in Brunei, I would wake up and be able to listen to the sermons uh, online, and I'm very grateful for that. I'm grateful for those who spoke, for their willingness, their effort, their preaching. Um, They shared with us not only from Scripture, but from their own lives, and it's much appreciated. In going back to the matter of creation, I just want to remind you, that one of the reasons we were looking at the doctrine of creation is because I think it is essential to Christian discipleship, to growth in Christian discipleship and the witness of the gospel. As I said when we began, we don't usually think in those terms. When you speak of creation, people usually think of a debate over how we got here, you know, a debate with science. Uh, but Christian, I mean, creation and gospel witness Creation and Christian discipleship, these are not things that we normally put together. And as I said, one of the reasons is because we usually see creation as a place where redemption took place. It's the stage. And so the stage is, you know, somewhat secondary. You know, it's the author, the playwright, and the actors on the stage. But the stage itself, the setting, is seen as somewhat unimportant. Um, when When we leave here... When we are resurrected, we'll go to heaven and then this will all be burned up and the stage is gone. But as we've seen, that in fact, creation and redemption go together. They should go together in our thinking. We also saw that we are to be Trinitarian in our thinking and in our thoughts when it comes to the matter of uh, creation. That the doctrine of the Trinity is part of the basic grammar. It is the vocabulary that we need to understand not only what it means to be a Christian and to live a Christian life, but the place of creation in that formula. We need to understand at least two things. First of all, that the doctrine of creation is, again, primarily not about creation, but it is about the God who creates. And that's why I think oftentimes when you have these debates between creationists and evolutionists or whatever, those who are atheists, it ends up being very much about 
this reality and not about the God who, in fact, called this all into being. And the God who creates is also the God who redeems. And so, as Christians, these are things that we cannot separate. And as I said earlier, the doctrine of creation is not primarily about origin, but about the purpose. It's not about the beginning, but it's about the ending. What is the telos? What is the purpose? What is the direction that creation is going? As Christians, when we begin to understand this and we confess this and live it out, then we learn about God's creative work only through God's redemptive work. We cannot separate the two. Otherwise, this world becomes um, unreal. And that's why before we sang the hymn, I Sing the Mighty Power of God, we need to know that God's power in creation as we sing about in that hymn, is also God's power in redemption and one day the resurrecting of our bodies. Creation is not a world without meaning. Um, Creation is, with redemption, being drawn by God to its final end, which is the new creation. We covered a lot in the nine weeks we looked at it, but based on all of that, I want to examine one of the Beatitudes. Again, in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. If you think about it a minute, there are three parts to this beatitude. The first is blessed or blessed. I think we all want that. Um, we want to be blessed. So that part, I think, of the beatitude we're happy with. But I think the second two we're less than thrilled with, and this is something we find throughout the beatitudes. As Jesus begins each beatitude by saying, blessed are, you know, when you say that, Already you have certain expectations. You think you know where this is going. And Jesus, in fact, goes in an entirely different direction. So he begins, blessed are the poor. It's like, well, that's not what we wanted to hear. You know, we, we're going in a different direction. And here, likewise, the second part is, blessed are the meek. We're not really sure that that's what we want to be. And then the third part, they will inherit the earth, which again is not something that we're sure we want to do. I mean, do you really want to inherit this fallen world, this earth? We're so caught up in the web of the fallenness of things. And at the same time, the so-called power of science to control the world. Um, So when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, we're not sure that, in fact, this is something that we want. But this is good news. This is gospel. This is what Jesus came to tell us about. So what would it take for us to understand this beatitude as, in fact, good news, a part of the gospel? I'm convinced a robust doctrine of creation, which is what we've been seeking to recover in this series. We must begin, however, by asking and answering the question, what does it mean to be meek? What is meekness? Jonathan Wilson, in his book, God's Good World, puts it this way. Briefly, meekness is power under control. It's not the absence of power. It's not the inability to act based on one's power. It is, in fact, the disposition where a person has power. They, in fact, can act. And they can act on the basis of that power. But that person, because he or she is meek, because of their meekness, they restrain or they direct the power in such a way 
that the act or the power of that act is properly proportioned to the circumstance and the purpose or the telos of that particular occasion. Jesus teaches us that meekness is to mark his disciples. In the familiar passage, Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To be honest, I'm not quite sure why the translators chose to use the word gentle, when in fact the word is meek, as we see in the Beatitude, blessed are the meek. So Jesus is the one who is meek. He is our teacher. He is our example of what it means to be meek. He says that we, in fact, are to come to him because he is meek. If, in fact, Jesus is the epitome of meekness, then we know that meekness is not simply weakness or powerlessness. However, Jesus did come, one who was powerful, and came and identified with our weakness and our powerlessness. He takes those out of the world in which we are poor and meek, and he puts us in the kingdom of God, in which we are made strong by our participation in creation and redemption. So the meekness of Jesus teaches us that we be, when we become participants in the story of redemption or the creation, I'm sorry, the redemption of creation, we become poor and meek according to the story of the fallen world. The reality is we are weak and powerless. Jesus redeems us, we follow his example, but somehow at that point then we are seen by the world as weak and powerless. You see, by the story of the world, we are fools to lay down our lives for our friends. We are crazy to direct our energies and abilities to the flourishing of others in Jesus Christ rather than ourselves. And we are deluded when we give up our comfort and our security to be present and patient in the midst of suffering and in the face of evil. According to the story of the world, we should take all our power and serve ourselves and those who are most closely or those who most closely share our lives. As one of the famous rabbis said, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? Um, that's the story of the world. But in reality, meekness characterizes a person who could, by his or her power, dominate. They have the knowledge. They have the insight. They have the communication skills. They could, in fact, dominate any given situation. But rather than doing that, they hold back. So that in their holding back, a sense of community, of communication, can, uh, of, uh, community is a word, but it, I don't think it expresses it as clearly as I want, of coming together as one, as a group of people, rather than a, a collection of individuals, and one person dominates all the others. And as a community is formed, then people are able to use their gifts, however small or fragile or big they might be, in the community because the person who is meek holds back, these things can begin to flourish, they can begin to bloom, blossom, and the person can express what God has given them by their gifts.
if you wish, if you think of a group of singers. And one of them is far better than all the others. Well, Meekness is a gifted vocalist who could, in fact, soar above all the others and stand out. And we who are in the audience will be, would be thrilled to hear this person's great voice. But instead, this person restrains himself or herself to blend in with the other voices and so that together they can be heard as one, as a choir, as a group of people singing together. In this case, a person is in fact not... Let me start over again. If a person follows this path toward meekness, this does not mean, in fact, that this person cannot excel. If you have a, a collection of people and one, is, one person is better than the other in all these given skills, but the person sort of holds back so that everyone can get on the same page and go in the same direction, that's not an obstacle to excellence. We don't say, oh, that's too bad. You know, that so-and-so could have excelled, but they were held up back by the group, by the crowd, because, you know, if they went ahead, then, you know, the others would be left behind. And that's just too bad because this person could have excelled. But that's not the case at all. Meekness, in all circumstances, depends on us understanding, first of all, our situation, the context in which we are, and the purpose for that particular situation. What is the function? What is the purpose? What is the telos? Why is this choir practicing? They're going to sing together. What is the purpose of that? And if you understand where God has put you and what the purpose is of that situation, then meekness is saying, you know, I can blow all these people out of the water. I'm that good. A word about humility or pride might be in order there. But meekness says, I will in fact pull back and be a part of what God has created here and be a part of it as we march toward a particular telos. This is excellence. This is the excellence of life in creation being redeemed. But if in fact we believe a different story, if we believe that the life of this world can only be understood and explained from within this world, and that its telos, where it ends, is death, then we're going to have a very different understanding. Then we might say that meekness is a vice and not a virtue. That this is something, it's, it's, maybe it's a ploy, it's sort of this fake humility that you're, you're really great, but you're, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm just going to hold back for the, for the benefit of the group. Or some might say, and you certainly find this in Nietzsche and his fiction, that meekness is a ploy to convince other people that in fact we are better than we are. Or, if in fact someone is better than everyone else, the group gets together, apart from this person, and say, listen, we really, really need to push meekness. Because if we do, then this person will sort of pull back and then we won't look so bad. Um, and meekness merely becomes a, uh, a ploy to restrain the excellent among us. On the other hand, if we believe that, that in fact we believe the story of this world, that death is the end of all things, then we might see meekness as an end to a means. And it's something that's instrumental. 
It's the best way to survive. That in fact, if you are too good, people are going to harass you or uh, ostracize you. And so if you want to be part of the group, then in fact, maybe you need to sort of tone it down a bit uh, and be meek. In this story, the powers of the many are joined together for the collective good. And it enables us all to survive and flourish as part of the group rather than as excellent individuals. I think what this all makes clear to me is that if we are going to talk about meekness correctly, then the declaration Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, it has to be put within a particular story. It has to be put in within the story that Jesus tells us. That is, the redeeming of creation in order that it will become the new creation. So what Jesus is talking about here is not just any kind of meekness. Okay? He's not talking simply of the disposition to restrain your power in order to conform. Rather, throughout Scripture, and particularly in the life of Jesus and on the lips of Jesus, meekness is the disposition to restrain our power so that it aligns with the redemption of creation for the new creation. So we aren't simply looking at this, this particular situation. That is part of what we are to look at. But we need to step back and look at the big picture. Okay, why did God make the world? Why did he make me? Why did he give me these gifts at this level? Where is this all going? That is the context within which we are to understand meekness. But living when and where we do, time is something that we believe we do not have. We don't have time to wait for things to work out. It's one of the reasons that I think that the story of Abraham is not told as often as it should be. I mean, it certainly seems foundational for Paul if you look at Romans. Um, but look at the story of Abraham. God called him and promised him a son, and it took 25 years for God to give him that son. It's like, I haven't got 25 years. I don't have that kind of time. And when we say, listen, meekness is restraining your power so that the group may flourish, that may take years. And living when and where we do, we simply do not believe that we have the time, that, to, that we can allow the time for things to take place. Somebody has to take charge. If you don't take charge right now, it's, it's, it's all going to blow up and it's not going to work the way that it should. And so it's as though you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. You're like, okay, that's it. You know, I've been as meek as I could for as long as I could, but somebody's got to be in charge. Someone's got to take us down the right path because it's just taking far too long. Jonathan Wilson puts it this way in his book. We frantically seek to put or to develop new scientific insights and technologies to rescue us from the consequences of our science and technologies. You know, we just can't wait for things to be to develop and to, we've got to take the, the bull by the horn, so to speak, and we've got to fix things now. If this is the story that we buy into, then we have in fact submitted to the fallen world and its horizon. And it causes us to believe that we are on a path that is ruled by death. But we're expecting science and technology to save us. 
consider where we are right now. What we are facing is not an environmental crisis that will give way to scientific and technological solutions. Rather, is what is required is a moral, spiritual, theological answer to the crisis. The crisis, which is, by the way, a moral, theological, and spiritual crisis. Because God created the world, and he's redeeming the world, it's all going to the same end, and that is the new creation. This may sound like passivity. It may sound like inaction. To simply go on living our lives as we are and trust God to solve things. Well, that's not what we're called to do. Yes, we are to trust God. But we are also to be active as well. For some, we are simply waiting for God to save us from the consequences of our sin. After all, isn't that what God's grace is all about? Paul in Romans 5 and 6 imagines the question, Shall we go on sinning? So that grace may increase by no means. We might take the structure of that question and ask, shall we continue living as we are in the world so that God's grace may abound? Should we just sort of sit back and say, listen, I'm going to be meek. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to let things, let God work things out. And I think Paul would answer, by no means. We who have died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? If in Jesus we have died to the way of the fallen world, if we have died to the story of the world, rather than living in the story of taking and keeping, we give and we receive. If we have died to taking and keeping, let us live in the way of the new creation, to the redemption of creation. And I think this is what Paul has in mind as he employs the Corinthian believers, be reconciled to God. This is in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, in the story of Jesus, we become participants through the work of the Holy Spirit. And when we become participants in the story of Jesus, we come to learn what meekness is. We do not become powerless. Our skills, our abilities do not become suddenly and irrecoverably lost. Rather, we begin the long discipline the long discipline of becoming free from the enslavement of our powers, our skills, our abilities to the story of the fallen world. We become free from that enslavement. The gifts we have, the abilities we have, the powers we have, these are all gifts from God. But if we put them in the story of the world, then in fact we become enslaved. If we put them in the story of Jesus, then we become freed from that. And following the example of Jesus, we become 
we learn to be meek, to restrain that which God has given us. In Psalm 37, our second text, we receive instruction in meekness. Meekness may be sustained by God only in those who have been captured by the vision of the new creation. If we do not think in terms of the new creation, first of all, meekness is going to be a real struggle anyway. But if we don't have that story, then then meekness becomes almost impossible. It becomes a ploy in many ways. It becomes sort of a fake, a pseudo-meekness to somehow conform to that beatitude. When we have been captured by the vision of the new creation, by God's grace, we can begin to resist the temptations to power. The temptations that the fallen world regards as necessary, as natural, and even inevitable. If you are going to excel in this world, then meekness is not possible, we are told. You must use the gifts and the powers that God has given you. And again, we sort of Christianize it, we baptize it by saying, this is your God-given gift. You must now exercise it with power. And the notion of meekness becomes very dark and dim. Now, from the passage in Psalm 37, we learn that those, there are those who are meek, or that those who are meek are those who are captured by the telos of the new creation. And so they are sustained by life in the faith community. If you get a chance to look at Revelation chapter 5, here we have, I think, a picture, a, almost a, a paint, a word picture of what meekness is. It is the Lion of Judah who becomes the Lamb who is slain. A Lion who is the epitome in the natural world of power is now the Lamb. And yet we find that he is the Lamb who is on the throne. And interestingly enough, oddly enough, he is the one that people are afraid of. Like, why are you afraid of a lamb that has been killed? Because, in fact, that lamb is the Lion of Judah. This is meekness. It is the restraining of one's power for the new creation. And this is what we see in the person of Jesus. I don't think there can be a more powerful image of meekness than this. The lion who becomes a lamb. The lion who, or the lamb, the lion who is the lamb. If you think about it, this all sounds a bit too impossible. Is meekness even possible in this world? Is it even desirable? If we want to flourish, if we want our families to flourish, if we want our community, our church, our neighborhoods to flourish, Do we dare be meek? And yet, here's what we find in Scripture. It is what we hear from Jesus. It is what we see in Jesus. In learning meekness, we must enter more fully into the conviction that creation is being redeemed by Jesus. If we don't see that, if we don't see the importance of creation and that it is being redeemed and it's going toward the new creation, I think meekness is an impossibility. It seems to have no place in this world. If we, don't, if we don't buy into this story, if you wish, if we do not understand the story of Jesus, of creation being redeemed for the new creation, 
then in fact we might fall into the trap of being frantic and fearful and wanting to overcome the fate of the world. Titus reminded us in his sermon that one of the mistakes that people makes that make is to assume that death is the worst thing that can happen. Because for them, in their story, death is the end. That is the telos. Okay? And if that's the end, then that's certainly something to be feared. You've got to get it all together and do everything you can before that moment. But if, in fact, the story of Jesus is true with the new creation, that which he created has fallen as being in the process of being redeemed by him in his meekness, its telos is not death, but is, in fact, the new creation. As we learn the meekness of Jesus from his words and from his life, we learn that our fate is not death, but is in fact an eternal destiny in Christ, who is the life of the world. And that destiny was in fact established before creation was ever created. And so we should, by God's grace, gladly and joyfully submit our fear, our frenzy, our frantic striving to the transforming work of the Spirit. Meekness becomes another way in which Paul's exhortation in Romans 12:2 is made real. And we can put it to use. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Which story are you going to follow? Are you going to be conformed to the story of the world in which the end of the story is death? So you better use what God has given you here and now? Or will you, in fact, listen to the story of Jesus? Not only the story he told, but the one that he lived, in which meekness, trust God, we restrain our powers, because we know that there's something even greater than death, that there's a telos that goes far beyond death, and that is the new creation. By the way, if you know the passage in Romans 12, I'm sure that you do, um, what he says about do not, be trans, uh, do not be conformed but be transformed, it comes right after he talks about presenting your body's living sacrifices, which I think would probably be sort of a 1A or 2 in terms of word pictures of meekness, of restraining our powers for the good of God's people. When we are conformed to the pattern of this world, we seek to solve the problems of this world by using the tools within the limits of this world by the power that we are granted to it, that we have granted to it. Like, oh, this is the problem, this is the solution, but we're doing so within a particular story. When we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, that is, by thinking differently based on the mercies of God, we are no longer enslaved to the allure of the illusion of power in this world. And it's a tough one because the temptation is so great. And in many ways, I think in the culture we live in, the power may not be real, but that doesn't seem to matter. So I remember Daniel Borson, who defines celebrity as somebody who is well-known for being well-known. If you haven't actually done anything, but there's a certain power that people know that you are. They've seen your picture on the, on the cover of a magazine and... And then we begin to think, well, wait a minute. If 
for the cause of Christ. Maybe if I was on the face of a magazine, maybe if I was a celebrity and I could witness to people that that's, that's what we should do, rather than understanding that we are called to be meek and to follow the example of Jesus. After all, why, didn't, why wasn't Jesus born in Rome? Why didn't he live in Rome? It was the capital of the empire. Why is he born in a stable in Bethlehem outside Jerusalem? One more thing, going back to Psalm 37 about the meek. Meek may also be used to refer to those who simply have no power. We've defined meekness as restraining power, but what if people have no power in the first place? Um, If you look at Scripture, particularly in the prophets, the testimony of Scripture is this, that those who are weak and poor are included among those who will inherit the earth. You see, prosperity, power, and influence are not necessarily signs that one is living in conformity with the telos of creation. You shouldn't say, oh yes, I'm on the right path because everything's going swimmingly for me. They are, in fact, if you look at Scripture, more often than not, a sign that you are, you've bought into the story of the world. And you're playing by the rules of the world. And that's why it looks like you're doing really well when in fact you're going contrary to what God's purposes are. The warning throughout Scripture, and again, especially in the prophets, is that if you master these techniques, you are in fact enslaved by them. And you've bought into a story that in many ways ends at death. It ends at death. And think of the parables, the parable of... uh, the the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, Jesus takes the story beyond death and we find out that the rich man wasn't rich anymore. When we bring our mastery into alignment with the redemption of Jesus, then in fact I think we begin to have a clearer picture of what wealth is. And I think we will take a meeker and a gentler view of what God has given us. In Luke chapter 1, we have what is known traditionally as Mary's Magnificat. It is her song. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but listen to it as I read it and consider the word meek does not appear in this, in this psalm, at least in this song in this translation, but as she writes of those who are weak and powerless... Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Interesting enough, blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. This is a declaration that is made as Mary carries Jesus in her womb. And it is lived out in his life as an adult. 
as Paul tells us in Philippians 2 regarding the meekness of Jesus, this exaltation over all things. And by the way, Paul tells the Philippians this because he wants them to be like Jesus. This is the story of Jesus. This should be the story of your life. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interest or to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the attitude. This is the story that we are to pattern our lives after. If we follow the example of Jesus, the meekness of a Christian sets us apart from others in two ways. It sets us apart from two groups, if you wish. Those who think that we must act apart from God in order to save our planet and its resources, to save what we've been calling creation in this series. Or, on the other hand, those who think that the superabundance super of God's life, the superabundance of life from God in this creation, gives us license to abuse and drain the resources of this world. This is not Christian meekness. In the world today, we hear many calls promising us that their way is the way to inherit the earth through advances in sciences, through the wonders of technology, and through previously undiscovered formulas for prosperity. By the way, we hear this among Christians as well as non-Christians. But what do we hear Jesus saying? The meek shall inherit the earth. This promise, this blessing, makes sense if we believe, I'm convinced only if we believe, that in Christ we will see the way to life in and through the redemption of creation for the new creation. You see, in the midst of death and the destruction of the things of this world, the way to life is not to gain better control of things. As things are dissolving around us, because of sin. The answer is not to somehow grasp onto them even more. Rather, we are to look to God and conform our lives to the story of Jesus. Listen to the promise, and we find this from Isaiah. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel, uh, Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongues shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And the highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get on, get on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. It's from Isaiah 35. This vision does not call us to passivity in the face of earth's devastations. It does not call us to be complacent in the face of the exploitation of what we call natural resources. Even in the face of, well, God promised to renew all things. No. Rather, what we hear in this vision is to meekness. To live in this earth at this time by bearing witness to the gentle, careful, and simple way of living that we see in Jesus Christ himself. Again, to quote from Jonathan Wilson again, if we do not live in that way, we should examine whether we are in Christ and Christ in us. Because the bottom line is that Jesus declares a blessing for those who are meek and by implication, a declaration of curse for those who are not meek. It isn't like, blessed are the meek, and then the rest of you, I, I, I don't know about you. In Scripture, we have one of two options, either to be blessed by God or cursed by God. And either we listen to the story of Jesus, we see the story of Jesus, and we hear it in Scripture, and say, this is how I will live. In the light of creation, being redeemed for the new creation, or we will buy into the story of the world and do so to a certain degree with a conscience that says, I can do this because this is what God has given me. I'm a child of God and he's given me these abilities and I'm going to do what I'm going to do and it's for the kingdom of God. And somehow we've gotten confused. We've on, we're on the wrong road. We're in the wrong story. And as such, meekness isn't a part of who we are. But Jesus tells us, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. And by God's grace, and the work of the Spirit in our lives, may we be people of meekness. Let's pray together. Our Father, I think that to the degree that we are not meek, in some ways, we do this almost with a clear conscience because we think we are doing the right thing. After all, we acknowledge what we have is coming from you, our abilities, our skills, our gifts. Our power comes from you. And so the very idea that we would somehow restrain our power, that we would look out for others, before we look out for ourselves, just seems 
so counterintuitive. And yet when we look at Jesus, we have the picture of meekness. The lion who became a lamb. The son of God who gave his life. Who allowed himself to be put to death by wicked men. May this attitude be in us as it is in Christ Jesus. Above all, may we see that death is not the end of all things. We certainly see this in Jesus because he was raised from the dead, as Zib read to us. That the story that we are a part of is creation being redeemed for the new creation, not life in this world until we die, and that's the end of the story. Help us to see these things. And may we not be conformed to the story of this world, but may we be transformed in our thinking and have the mind of Christ. I thank you that you brought us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place and as we walk in your world. We pray through Jesus and in his name. Amen.